Welcome to the Net and Sarah Show, where we aim to touch, move, and inspire you every single week. Really? We're really going to introduce our own show? Maybe we should leave it to the pro. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. One second, ladies. Here we go. Sarah Maxwell and Natalie Cook are experts in visualization and deliberate use of the law of attraction. As dynamic world athletes representing Canada and Australia in beach volleyball, they honed in on achievement at the highest level. With Natalie winning an Olympic gold medal on her home beach of Bondi is a pinnacle example. Their powerful techniques transmute the spiritual to the tangible, allowing thousands of their community members to bring their vision boards to life. Recently, they have returned from their full-time family adventure in Europe and are now grounding down in Australia where they are focused on all of you. How can your dream become reality this decade, perhaps even this year? Not only do Nat and Sarah bring us their three-step manifestation process complete with downloading worksheets, but also their realities of failed attempts and some of the frustrations that color their path. They believe that this life journey was never intended to be jolt-free, but rather a powerful trip down the raging rapids of life. Each week, the Nat and Sarah Show will navigate the epic lives of their mentors to uncover how they use their own manifestation process to produce dreams that are available to us all. Are you a member of the community? Go to bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah Show to download your three-step journal to follow along with each workshop-style teaching episode and get ready to take action on your inspirations. Today, we continue the conversation with an international humanitarian. In lieu of the best way to introduce Rabia Sadiq, being her onstage standing ovation TEDx talk, which we will share in the show notes, I can assure you, I thought I would instead read an excerpt from the Sydney Morning Herald's description of the events of September 19, 2005, <coughs> forever shaped the course of her life. The striking brunette with the piercing blue eyes has an AK-47 aimed at her forehead. Crowded around her in a stifling tomb-like room are about 30 swarthy bearded men, most of whom are jeering whore and traitor in Arabic. While tossing up whether to shoot her and her three male associates on the spot or to spirit them away in their white death car to the dusty edge of town. She's the only woman in the room she feels naked without her hijab and beads of sweat are slowly forming on her brow but she shoots her assailant a screw you stare icy enough to drive his body temperature down by five degrees it's september 19 2005 and rabia sadiq has been asked to come here to a police compound in the iraqi port city of basra to negotiate the release of two british sas soldiers who dressed as arabs were captured while investigating the infiltration of the police force by Shiite extremists. Hired by the British Army to monitor human rights abuses, Sadiq has shown her mettle time and again in negotiations, earning the grudging trust of local judges. So when talks between Major James Woodham, head of the UK Brigade Surveillance Unit, and the police station's judges break down, the Iraqis ask for her, the Australian woman, the Muslim, the British Army Major. The harrowing details of what happened next became debate for the UK Tribunal, where she successfully sued the UK Ministry of Defence for discrimination after it failed to acknowledge the role she played 
in the rescue of two captured Special Forces officers in war-torn Iraq. Brought up in Perth, Australia, to an Indian Muslim father and an Australian mother, she went on to become a lawyer and federal prosecutor with a heart for justice as she worked for the Legal Aid Commission in Perth. While living in London with her husband, she enlisted in the British Army as a stepping stone to more humanitarian work like the United, like the United Nations. And it was then that she witnessed the events of 9-11, and we all remember where we were. And she was sitting in the Gatwick Airport on her way flying back to Australia. And she could sense destiny weaving its way into her life. She decided right then to make herself indispensable to the army, take a crash course in Arabic and brush up on the five pillars of Islam. After negotiating the release of those SAS officers described above, she couldn't comprehend why a cup of tea and a hug was all she got while her male counterparts were being extensively debriefed. Exposing this slight by the British Army, she won a groundbreaking case against them, which thrust her in the media in a way that most humans could never cope with. Bringing her poise and composure to the scene, she returned to Perth to raise her triplets. She clearly doesn't do anything halfway, and she became an accomplished presenter, panelist, author of best-selling book Equal Justice, and media commentator. So, Rabia, thank you for speaking to our community today about resilience, composure, and poise in the yeah. face of challenge. You're very welcome, Sarah. Thanks for that great introduction. That is your life. Like, and there's so much more. There's so much more. Um, and I really want to, um, look, I've been deep in the Rabia files for the past <laughs> couple of days, which has been really inspiring. And the thing that I think could really contextualize people is, could you give a picture of growing up in Perth? You know, you share about having brown skin. Yeah. And what was that like? And what began to stir for you in terms of your determination for justice? Sure. Well, we immigrated to Australia and to Perth, as you said, in the mid 1970s. So my, as you said in your introduction, my father is, a, is an Indian, uh, grew up in India. My mother is originally Australian, but spent a lot of time abroad. Um, I lived my early years in India, and as I was approaching school age, my parents, like many immigrants, made the very courageous decision to leave all that was familiar to them, to come to Australia, to, to a new land, in, in the case of my father, to give um, the family a bright future. So when we arrived in, in Perth in the mid-70s, it was at a time when the policy of the day, the domestic, um, as well as the immigration policy, was something called the White Australia Policy. Um, some of your audience may recall that. Um, and, and what it meant in reality for those of us that came from outside that weren't of Anglo-Saxon origin was almost this expectation and pressure that we would blend in. That's pretty much what we were told. Um, to become accepted, to progress in this new country, you have to check your differences at the door and you have to fly beneath the radar and you just have to blend and become invisible. And so that's what most immigrants try to do. Um, you know, learning the language, learning to try and speak the language in the local accent, um, becoming apologetic and somewhat at times embarrassed for all those qualities and, and, and characteristics that made you stand out. And I remember feeling that really acutely as a kid that uh, looked different, sounded different, had this unusual name, um, 
all I wanted to do was to blend in. And I didn't, of course, for all the reasons that I just said. So um, I remember throughout my childhood feeling very much like I was a square peg in a round hole. And I was a bit of a loner. Uh, and I guess for me, some of the earliest formative experiences I had that, that, that sort of started sowing this seed of passion for justice and social equality was really seeing what my parents went through back then as immigrants and particularly seeing the journey that my dad traveled. You know, he, he was a, he still is an educated, articulate man who'd achieved so much. Um, and uh, none of that, none of that mattered because he became invisible when he came to Australia and he gave up everything for us. He worked two jobs, um, manual jobs. Um, and sometimes in, 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 in the vacation times, he worked three jobs for us to give us the best start. And, you know, almost there was not a day that went past where dad wasn't subject to some sort of ridicule or, or discrimination. Um, and, you know, from being made fun of for his accent, uh, remarks about his dark skin, you name it. And, you know, Dad handled it with humour and with grace and with so much outward resilience. But we, we also know that behind closed doors, the story is different. And even as a, as a small child, I could see that those wounds that were inflicted on Dad every day through those ignorant comments and taunts, they really did leave scars and they did run deep. Um, and I remember feeling a mixture of disappointment and ups and grief and anger, even as young as five and six. Why were people so mean to my daddy? And why were people so mean to people that looked different? And that's not fair. Were probably my simple thoughts back then you know the beauty of unfiltered childhood of course you see things very clearly um because life hasn't clouded your views on things um Absolutely. at that stage so that's kind of where it started and then of course i travel my own journey where um uh in relative ways i very much um experienced that whole discrimination and that subconscious um othering <laughs> Um, that we now understand as adults is, is, is what it was. Um, and I think a lot of that was brought into sharp focus uh, when I was about nine and a half, uh, when, as you touched upon, um, I guess I was subject to a great injustice when I was sexually abused by a man that I trusted wholeheartedly. Mm. And that's the way it goes. You know, um, one in three of us have suffered some form of sexual abuse, usually at the hands of someone we know and trust. And back then, um, we didn't speak about such things because sexual abuse, like mental illness, was filled with shame and stigma. So we were told not to speak about it, else um, not being able to hold ourselves up uh, as fully functioning individuals. So I was abused for a long time, almost over the space of a year. Um, by then, I had a little baby brother who was not quite two, who I felt very responsible for, who, who I used to care for at times when both my parents were out working hard at their various jobs. And I suffered in silence for such a long time because one of the things we know about 
uh, pedophiles is that they are absolute masters at manipulating the weaknesses in their victims. And my abuser knew that my weakness was the overwhelming love and protective instinct I had over my baby brother. And he knew that that's how he could keep me quiet while he was violating me day after day, month after month. And I did keep quiet because I knew that was the only way I could protect my baby brother from the same fate until it all got too much. And until the day came many, many, many months later where I knew that my silence could no longer protect my brother and I knew he was now at risk. And that's when I spoke and spoke up and broke my silence. But then what was to follow would change me uh, forevermore. Because you're finally speaking up didn't have a full impact. Like something didn't happen as you thought and wished it would. Exactly. So I finally told my parents uh, what had been happening to me. And of course they were heartbroken. They were mortified, but they too were the product of their time and their generation and their lived experiences and their culture. And um, a decision was made, which was a very common decision back in those days to keep quiet. Mm -hmm. So after getting over the shock and the horror, the decision that was finally made was that we must never speak about this again. The police weren't called, no justice was brought against my abuser and I was told never to speak of it in order to protect mine and the family's reputation and good standing. Mm. And I get my parents were doing the best that they could and they believed that, that the decision they made was for the good of me and us all. But the impact of that decision would change me forevermore um, and would drive decisions that I would make later on in life again and again and again because I felt utterly powerless and I felt completely voiceless. Yeah. Wow. And boy, did, did you end up speaking in the end, which is just so beautiful that you um, utilize that experience and have brought a lot of justice in different areas since. And I just want to sh comment a couple of things, because as you shared so openly about coming to this country and what your dad went through, I just wanted to throw this out there because you know what I imagined? I imagined my little family of three with my four-year-old heading to India Mm. and being asked to disappear and mm. look and pretend to be Indian. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, firstly, we all visually get how that just doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> and like from a language point of view, yes. I just, that is what I was thinking as you were sharing. And I just wanted to throw that for people because I think sometimes um, it's so unfathomable what you're saying. And so I just want to thank you for the way you shared that, because I think there's an opportunity for us all to really get in the skin, literally, yeah. of somebody else and what that could be like. And, and I really got your father being articulate and educated yeah. and yet um, being voiceless himself, you know, having to disappear. And then when his daughter wants his protection, yeah, it's almost like, um, a repeat of yeah. the behavior. And there is a sad irony about that. And, you know, my parents didn't realize they didn't have the insight or, or I guess the, the, the perspective that they have now. Um, and there was a sad irony about the fact that my father was rendered, you know, feeling impotent and voiceless um, after doing something that was a great sacrifice and, and meant to, to, 
provide our whole family with a bright future. Um, you know, the way that he was, he felt so voiceless and powerless and actually the decision that he and my mom made kind of replicated that um, and, and fed that in, in me. But, but, you know, it, it wasn't malicious. They were doing the best that they could. Um, and how were they to know that that would have the lifelong repercussions that it would have on me? And you know what? No regrets. Yeah. It, we all have stories. And I know that people listening to this interview now will be reflecting on their stories and asking themselves, and I hope asking themselves, well, you know, what um, life-changing, life-impacting experiences have they gone through? Absolutely. Fed, sowed seeds for them and, and, and shaped their values and perceptions on the world. And, you know, I have a four-year-old who's just started to say, that's not fair. You know, like this is a new <laughs> word for her. Get used to that. <laughs> used, yeah, used in multiple contexts, of yep. course. Um, a lot to do with how much chocolate she's getting. However, yep. however, I felt that as you described your story, that kids always know when something's off. Yes. And whether it was the sexual abuse or even whether it was how your dad was being treated and how kids were making fun of you. Um, I just love the honesty and innocence of the child. And, and that's what I hope I really want today to be about is honoring that we all start with that voice. Absolutely. That kind of, well, by the way, it's always at play, but there's like an intuition and offness that we yes. sense yes. and being able to, to trust that voice. And I know for you, you chose law as a logical way to change the world. You know, I really get this sense from you that you want to transform things and make them better. So you worked in legal aid and yeah. yet you strove for more. You knew there was more. So you head to the UK. Mm-hmm. How do you believe that your destiny was fulfilled on that day in 2005? Like, do you believe in some way that you were meant to be there and, and all the events that, that transpired to negotiate the release of the SAS officers to survive yourself. How do you feel that was fulfilling your destiny? Ah, uh, that's interesting that you use the word destiny because it's a word that my father uses again and again and again and has used since we were little. That's the way that we were taught to view life, that not to be self-defeating, but that we all have a destiny and that things unfold the way they're meant to. So yeah, that's really interesting that you would phrase it that way. Um, and I guess for so long I've, I've, I've reeled against that, you know, as, as kids and as young adults do when they're being mm-hmm. taught a specific way by, by their parents. You test that and you, and, and you reject that until you travel your own journey and think, huh, actually, some of what they were speaking about was actually uh, that made a lot of sense. <laughs> um, I do. The short answer is I do believe that I was meant to be there and that the events unfolded the way they did um, because that's what was destined to happen. Mm. Didn't make it any less frightening or painful or tortuous at the time, but I believe that, oh, how do I put this? <clears throat> you know, there's the saying that life never deals you a hand that you're not able to, to, yeah, to uh, handle or that you're ready for, yeah. play, to manage. And I believe that's true. You know, you, you were saying before, you mentioned before that I have triplets and 
you know, again, that was something that I could never have conceived, but that was the hand that I was dealt with. And I knew that I would be able to embrace that and cope with that because that's, that's, that's the natural order of life. Mm. So I believe that that was meant to happen to me. And I believe that my challenge was to use those things that I was blessed with, yeah. my intellect, um, my ability to speak, my ability to tell stories. Um, ironically, up until that point, I'd been, for, for 20 odd years, I'd been telling the stories of other people to obtain justice for them. But now it was time to tell my story. Um, and I but you just, I want to interrupt just for one second because oh. you have the voice. Yes. And yet, what allowed you to have the composure to, so if you're in a situation like that and you can literally negotiate the ability to use your skill at that moment and not even just in the moment to save your life and that of others, but then to go up against the giants like UK Ministry of Defense, like what allows that kind of composure and resolve? Uh, I, that's a, that's a big question. And I think the answer to that is not straightforward, but if I can try and simplify it the best way that I can, mm. I think by that stage, I had come up against a number of monsters. Mm. Uh, and I think that the resilience that I had built by that stage, um, having been through what I had been through, I think the choice that I had made early on in my life not to be a victim and to channel what I had been through and uh, for it to be a positive legacy in a way that I could help others to not find themselves in the same situation. Mm. And I think thirdly and most importantly, uh, my choice to deeply, deeply root myself and align myself in my values and to live my life in full alignment to that and to live it fearlessly in alignment with that. So when you, you know, there's a media circus and there's criticism coming at you, what allows you to stick to your values? And did you ever think about giving up? Because it would have maybe Absolutely. been a bit easier. Yeah. So the way that I describe my values and the way that I hope um, that increasingly people um, will, will choose to live their life is by rooting the way we live, the way we lead, um, the way we conduct our relationships and the way we show up in the world based in our values, which, which become our compass, which keep us on our true north because, you know, we are fallible human beings. We are tempted, we are distracted, we are swayed, we are influenced. But if we can always come back to the values that we hold dear, that will set us back on our, on, on our true course. So I think that's what kept me um, committed to pursuing what I knew to be the right course, what I knew to be just and true and fair. Um, did I at times feel like throwing in the towel? Absolutely, because I'm human as well and I had a heart and a soul. Mm. And... Um, you know, when, when I was forced, because keeping in mind, this, this was a two-year decision, I tried every avenue I knew of to try and get some sense and some justice and some correction to the appalling way that I had been treated and forgotten and written out of this whole event. Um, and 
at every at every turn, um, the doors were slammed in my face. So I didn't want to take the decision to sue the British government and the British Army for discrimination. You know, you don't wake up one day and think, <laughs> I think I'm going to uh, sue a government. Um, so this was really my hand being forced. This was the only avenue left for me. And as you can imagine, I agonised over that for a long time because I knew that would be a David and Goliath battle. Mm. So when I, when I decided that I had, to, I had to stay the course and I had to take this last step, which I knew would be the end of the career that I had come to love and my calling, hmm. but I knew that I couldn't have lived with myself had I not taken this step because to me it would have made everything that I had stood for and everything that I had asked others to do to be completely hypocritical and a contradiction. But in the, in the, in the journey to actually getting to justice and my day in court as they say um the government and the military tried every trick in the book to defame me to wow. uh uh to terrorize me to intimidate me to ostracize me and my then husband wow. um who suffered a great deal as well by standing by me and keeping in mind he was also a serving officer he was in oh, the royal wow. okay. and he was threatened um as well and his career was destroyed over it as well. So it's one thing when you make a personal decision to take a stand and you suffer the consequences, but when the person you love the most um, is suffering as well, that really, really forces you to um, have a check as to your motives. Sure. Um, so, yeah, there were times where I was distraught and distressed and frightened and harassed and I thought this is just too damn hard sure. hurting so many people and is it worth it but I think ultimately my my deep belief and commitment to justice and to being a role model and to living my leadership and to um being true to everything that I stood for is what won out. And the fact that I had this unwavering, incredible support from my partner who, who, who was consistent the whole way through. You, you have to do this and I will stand by you and we will deal with the consequences no matter what. But this is true and this is right and this is just. So ultimately, we will be looked after. And you said something really ominous in that description. I'm so glad we talk about where you've come from as a little girl, what you experienced, what motivated you back then, because you said something about being written out of history or written, they, yeah. they tried to remove you from yeah. the story. Yes. And then you spoke earlier about your dad being invisible. Yes. And this, and this kind of like a racing of who he was, you know? Yeah. And I just, that's the destiny moment I get for me is like, they didn't know the history of who had already been tried to be erased. Yes. And it was just like, not this time, not yeah. this time. Yeah. It's just amazing to me how our lives are on this course. Yes. They, they intersect these moments where other people without that history might've said, oh, just under the rug. But yes. you know what? You've done that before. You've yes. gone a year being sexually abused and seen, you know, and you've experienced that enough to say, you know what? I'm not doing that. 
Yeah. I'm not going to do that. That's not my value in life. And, and yeah, it's just, thank you for sharing so articulately, um, which I well, wonder if your dad gave you. And, and, and I don't want to be deceptive. I don't want it to come across as being purely altruistic. There were two things going on. You know, there was ultimately this commitment to standing up and, and speaking out and, and if this is happening to me with all my resources and all my influence and all my um, intellect, then goodness knows what else is happening and will continue to happen to those that don't have influence and a voice. Absolutely. So there was this, if I can't stand up and change things for others, then who can? But there was also this acknowledgement that I knew that if I didn't speak up, that it would eat away at me and, and, and would slowly destroy me. So there was a self-motivated um, reason for it as well. And look, let's, let's talk a little bit more about some of these voiceless people that you, that you speak about, meaning these people who may not have um, the, the capacity to be so articulate. No. Um, and zoom right into today, the current yeah. climate of refugees in Australia, race relations in particular for Muslim Australians, yes. emails um, for both those groups. And I really want to hear your voice and about today yeah. and all that's occurred has now landed you here in this moment, in this time. It's a very hot time. What, I would like to hear your thoughts on where we're at in Australia. So I want to go back to that word destiny that you used mm. earlier. Mm. You know, having spent almost a decade and a half away from my country um, mm. and having had the privilege of living and working in many parts of the world, it was really only my children that were the driver for me to come back to Australia. And I did so for them and purely for them. <laughs> Ironically, like my father, to provide them with what I thought would be a bright, healthy, prosperous, um, balanced, beautiful upbringing and future. So you can imagine my shock having been away for most of my career and a large part of my adult life. And I come back to Australia and it is not the country that I remember it to be. Mm. Um, I come back to an Australia where I almost from day one, I am, I am greeted with and shocked by the overt racism and the arrogance and the undertone of aggression that I feel that I have a visceral response to. Not only do I see and hear, but I feel it. And I remember again and again and again turning to my then British husband and apologising and saying, this is not the country that I promised you that we would be coming to and this is not the home that I remember. And I remember grieving and I remember feeling um, almost traumatised. And it took me a long time. It took me a good couple of years to even reconcile that I had made the right decision to convince my family to come and live in Australia. Um, Is there an example that you can think of where you were just shocked? Like, I can't believe that just happened. Um, yeah. And, and it's this feeling of going back in time. You know, I really felt that we had progressed as a nation and as a culture and as a society um, and after living in the UK and the Middle East and parts of Europe, I thought that I was going to be uh, bringing my, my family to the place that I remember, this multicultural, harmonious, accepting, inclusive, chilled out country. 
Mm. So we arrive home and literally it hadn't been 24 hours and I was driving in the car with my parents and we'd pull up at the lights and the car in front of us had a bumper sticker saying, I grew, I, what, what was it? Let me just get it right. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to, I have to um, apologize because I'm going to swear now. It's okay. The bumper, the bumper sticker said, I grew here, you flew here, fuck off. Oh, wow. Um, and then in the next few weeks, I saw similar bumper stickers. Um, oh, wow. If you, if you don't like the way we roll, then get back on the next boat. Wow. Um, really blatant um, messages mm-hmm. on people's cars, public displays of racism. Mm. Uh, the politics at the time was desperate. Um, You know, I was hearing words and sentiment based on fear and division coming out of our politicians' mouths day in, day out. And and I guess it was also at a time when Australia, like the UK, like uh, uh, the US, where this rise in populism and this sort of right-wing sentiment was gaining a greater voice. And I was completely shocked and I despaired. And of course, now I understand that, or now I believe that the reason, one of the personal reasons for why I am back here at home is because there is so much work that needs to be done because there are so many voiceless. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) There are so many people that have fled horror and Mm. devastation and tragedy with the belief that they could come to a place like Australia and they would be heard and they would be protected and that they would be given refuge. And this country is not that country anymore because they are imprisoned and they are demonized And going back to that simple word that you used, that your daughter uses, it just simply isn't fair. We are not the country that we professed to be. We are not the country that I believe that we aspired to be. And we are, we have lost our way. Mm. And be it refugees and asylum seekers, be it women in general, be it our indigenous population, we are not telling the truth and we are not doing right and we are not being true to who we aspire to be. And we need, we need people that ha- are blessed with a voice and with intellect and with lived experience to speak up. Yeah. Because guess what? Our leaders are not doing it. Our leaders are not doing it for us. They, they are doing quite the opposite and I believe that it is absolutely time, and we're seeing it all around the world. It is absolutely time if there is one good thing that has come out of this um, um, farce of Western world politics that we're seeing, it's that people now are taking back their agency and saying, you know what, not in our name. Mm. You will no longer, we will no longer allow you to kill the planet, to demonise innocent people, mm. um, to widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots, and to deny the truth. 
And that's that's my destiny. That's my calling. Thank you. That's beautiful. I'm home. And I, I thank you for the just the real emotion because yeah, got me as well. Um, and with that, if if we just for a moment, this is just my mind trying to work it out as well and understand how advocacy could work. Every day I drive my daughter to school and there's this guy on the corner of the street on Mogul Road. So if you're Brisbane, you see this guy dressed in his like high vis and he's written on it. And he's like telling people to donate money for the Canada project. He's talking about refugees. And we always like, we love this guy. Yeah. And he's out there all the time, but well, not but. And that's his contribution. Yeah. How can the average Australian bring more conscious awareness to these racial issues? Let's take extremists out for a minute. Because for yeah. me, I just sometimes go, you know what? This is just my judgment, but that brain ain't, ain't even working. So let's talk to the average Australian who's doing the best that they can, yes. trying to stay safe. What would allow them to bring more conscious awareness here? So from big waves, little ripples grow. And we can all do something and it doesn't have to be big and it doesn't have to be suing governments or going on television. (laughs) We can start in our own homes. It's the way we speak. It's the way we relate to others. And it's the values that we live and we espouse to our partners, to our family, to our children. And then we can grow from there. So it starts in the home because what we teach in the home to our children is what they, um, what they give out in, in their lives and the way they behave outside the home, in the schools and in the community and in their lives. So I think it starts in the home. It starts with, with it then goes to our, to our neighbours and our community. So we, we, we need to start right in our own backyard, sharing our stories, not being afraid to speak our values not being afraid to challenge our own perceptions and to challenge those of those challenge the perceptions and the beliefs of those that we love and we know Mm. and having those open conversations and you know what being willing to have our hearts and heads changed and challenged as well you know I, i i've heard people a lot saying that um ignorance comes from uh, or, 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 or racism or bigotry comes from ignorance. So if you don't know any, for example, if you don't know any Muslim people or black African people, make a point of this year mm. getting to know someone and oh, asking, yeah. asking them about their life. Because, you know, when you have a conversation with someone that you feel is different to you, what becomes very clear, and particularly if you can have the conversation over food, um, what becomes very clear is that there is so much more that binds us than separates us. There's a, there's a, there's an Asian saying, we say same, same, but different. <laughs> That's good. Um, okay. That was the yeah. best advice ever that you, yeah, I think it's practical, you, right? It's practical. It's doable. There's no excuse around it because I, my emotion comes from the thought that if everybody actually put themselves in the situation of what people do to get to this country, they would never have that bumper sticker again. No. Um, Like I I remember seeing this story of someone from Africa 
falling from an airplane, coming from Africa to Heathrow Airport. Yeah. And there's a, a building, like a office building right near the airport where they have had over six dead bodies fall on that same building because the tires of the plane, when they let down to land, yes. the person was in the plane, like they couldn't get on the plane. So they were in the, that structure where the tire goes Yes, for that trip. Yes. And you're telling me that that person is doing this to hurt you in some way, meaning coming to the country to take yes. your job or it's yes. like, know that person yes, and be forever changed. Know that person be and prepared. realize, oh yeah. Be prepared to listen to one person's story. And then I defy you to call them illegal and want to intern them and throw away the key. I've got this I wasn't planning to talk about this, but you got, now you got me crying and emotional. So I just, I, sorry, I not sorry. Well, it's in line with what you're saying and it may exist in some way that I don't know about, but I've got this thought that if every single person that came to Australia had a, um, I'm just going to call it a billet cause I'm an athlete. So it's almost like a family who is kind of like got your back. Yeah. Apparently, that used to be one of the methods in Australia. It was called sponsorship. Yeah, and I that now they call it that, but it has nothing to do with anybody having your back. It's no, it's all about money. Illegal <laughs> piece of paper. Because yeah. I also was sponsored as a Canadian um, to come to Australia, and I know that it. Look, I actually had people that had my back, but not officially. So, yeah. to me, this is in line with what you're saying. If if the family from Sudan arrived here, yes, my family had their back. Yes. And we got to know them. I, what you just said, I defy you to ever think there's not enough room. And, and, um, yeah, and so. Not only that, but if, if we, I love that idea. If we could have some sort of a home-based guardianship program like that, you know, because it all comes down to policies and governments pass policies. If people, um, want them and speak loudly enough, um, because politicians are about getting votes and if they think that it's something that the people want and need, then they will make it happen. But, you know, if just the example that you gave, it has a beautiful ripple effect because not only would you as a family, your perceptions and beliefs be changed for forevermore, not only does your thinking and your network grow and become more diverse, but that family come to this country after fleeing all sorts of horrors and know from the very beginning that they are not alone. Yes. And there is so much research that tells us that if you can, that if displaced people can have some sense of well-being and some sense that they are not alone, the resourcefulness that they are able to harness and the success that they can make and the contribution that they can make to their um, new home um, becomes immeasurable. Oh, I love, oh my gosh. I, well, I'm, so there I'm is glad a moral, an emotional, yes. a social, and an economic case for that. Okay. Well, that's going to be, I've said it out loud now, um, that I've been toying with how I can be a voice for change. You yeah. know, if you've got the legal, um, acumen 
I've got the rally, the troop acumen. Um, and, and that's, I think an area, thank you for saying all those things and adding to it because I feel that that's something that's doable yeah. and it's possible and it will improve the whole community and the whole country. And I just, Oh, we've gone way over because there's just so much to say, but I want, can I'm doing say, a thing. Can I say one, can I say yes, one last please. thing? I know we've gone yes. over and, we're being, and I'm being really naughty. No, do it. Um, I want you to. I want to say one last thing. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know whether I've articulated what myself clearly and I'm not going to apologize for getting emotional because the, that emotion comes from years of hearing thousands of stories um, and to not get emotional would be impossible. And I think when we feel is when we act. But I'm going to say this. Um, if everybody listening to this, including you, including me, can commit to doing one thing, one act of change. If we, you know what, it's, it's I don't know when this is going to go to where, but this is early in we're speaking very early in 2020. So that's right. I'm not really a fan of resolutions, but I'm going with it. If we could make this uh, 2020 for the new decade resolution that we commit to doing one act that is within our capabilities that brings about some change, even if it's just within ourselves. Could you imagine Sarah, if every single person committed to just doing one act, what the ripple effect of that would be? And we have the agency and we have the power. Oh, uh, hello. Yes. Embrace it. And I'm going to um, help that one more step because I've aligned with an amazing woman in Sydney. Mm -hmm. She created something called momentsofhumanity.com. Mm -hmm. And her and I are kind of working together around little pod grabs, moments of kindness. And it, the moments of kindness was me and South Bank on a development course and we had to go out and do a project at South Bank. And there's a long story to this, but basically we hadn't eaten anything for like six hours, mm -hmm. starving. Um, and there was one family sitting on a blanket and they, I, I was actually asking them for a pen. Um, and they, uh, by the way, I'd been rejected by seven people. Like who's this weirdo yeah. at South Bank asking me for a pen? You know, I don't know if it's the Canadian accent. I don't know. But whatever. My, the Aussies were getting rejected in my group too. So anyway, this family, the pen, that she couldn't get that pen out of her bag quick enough to say, come sit on the blanket, come eat with us. And I instantly reaction said, no, that's okay. Because I just thought, well, I, I can't take her food. She, you know, I don't know. It was a reaction. And then I thought, you know what? Six hours. I'm so hungry, just, and my lessons around receiving. So I, yeah. I sat there. They told me that they had been in Australia for two days and they kept saying to me, it's a long story. It's a long story in broken English. It turns out that that family was refu were refugees from Iraq. Yes. And they had been in a camp for six years in Iraq and they'd finally received, um, I don't know if it's called asylum, but they... Yeah basically asylum to Australia. Yeah. And they were so excited finally after so long. So they land in Australia and the plane touches down and goes to the, um, it's not, is it Christmas Island? I don't want to say the wrong thing. It's Nauru. Nauru. Thank you. So they touch down and they're quickly in a refugee 
um, detention camp, actually. Yes. So then there's this little boy running around on the blanket, and it turns out that they have their first baby in this detention camp because they were there for two years. Yes. She gets sick, and she's flown to Australia because you're not allowed to be sick at the detention camp. So her and her husband get separated, mm. and she has the boy. Yes. So two days, they've been back, and this dad is playing with his son. And they are feeding me. Yeah. And this is what I want to say about momentsofhumanity.com. It's a capture for stories like this. Yes. Where kindness, if you think that people coming to this country is a problem, you know what I got that day? Generosity. And I got how much that's missing in my life. Yeah. Who I could be for other people in my own generosity. That's what they gave me. They gave me action. They gave me a sense of like who I could be for others. Yes, absolutely. That's what they gave to an Australian who I'm about to become an Australian on the 26th. Thank you. Um, And guess what? You know, that's what's possible. So if you want to go to momentsofhumanity.com and just take on what Rabia just, just put out to us all and share it there, that's just a space because there's something about that kind of energy co-creating with yeah. those kind of stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And that's a beautiful example because your life will be changed forevermore from that. And that's a story. So I guess for me, the, the thing that I would like to say in conclusion yes. uh, is that you have just reinforced um, to me what now my life's work is, which is about harnessing stories to impact change. So, you know, I, I, I made the decision when I came back home that, that the law was not the only way that I was going to be able to serve and impact change. So for a number of years now, the focus of my work and my calling is to share not just my story but the stories of others because it is through bringing the human face to all of those things that we have spoken about, that's when we engage people's hearts, that's when we move people to feel And that's when we mobilize each other to act and to commit change. So if anyone wants to join me in that and and wants to know more about that and wants to collaborate with me and work with me and perhaps even tune in when I'm on the television speaking about things, jump onto my website and we we can do this together. Awesome. And I'll be sharing in the show notes how you can stay connected. And I'm putting my hand up, by the way. So I would love to collaborate with you and um, just be a force for good just through the actions that I can take and the voice. Thank you so much. My my absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for the time and the platform. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community at bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal and participate in weekly lives found only in our private group. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, 
When you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review. Thanks.